You are listening to the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast, taking a data-driven look at the world of Westminster politics and beyond. On each week's episodes, we'll be joined by a series of expert guests that will give us their insight behind what the numbers are saying. This week's episode takes a look at the Labour Party and Keir Starmer's ratings with former Labour advisors Alistair Campbell and Aisha Hazarika, as well as our Chief Executive Ben Page. We hope you enjoy the show. So, Ben, we'll come to you first on the numbers. We've had our most recent um, political monitor out last week. Very good numbers for Keir Starmer. 51% of the public satisfied with the job he's doing as Labour leader. 20% dissatisfied. On face value to the listener, that sounds very good. But I wondered if you could uh, give your impressions on those figures and how they compare to some we've seen in the past. Well, by historic standards, Keir Starmer's made a a very good fist of his, his role as leader of the opposition. So he's now similar to Tony Blair in the early uh, to mid-1990s. Um, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, and to, to do this so quickly, I mean, it may be in part in comparison to his predecessor, who was, of course, the worst-rated leader of the opposition Ipsos Mori had ever measured since 1977 when we first started looking at it. But no, he's made a good start. And, of course, Labour is now only five points behind in terms of voting intention, which is also, um, you know, again... Impressive, given that the rally round the flag moment that we saw uh, as the as the crisis began saw the Conservatives at over fifty percent in the polls and streets ahead, and you know that that has now been declining. So where it goes from here is now really really interesting, I think. So Ayesha, I'll come to you um, first. I mean, I must admit, from my perspective, looking at these numbers every month as we do here at Ipsos Towers, I was taken aback a bit by just how positive the public's initial reaction to Keir Starmer seems to have been. Um, would, are you surprised by that too? And I wondered if you could uh, tell us what you think's behind it. Yeah, I think I was surprised. I mean, I I, I had a lot of confidence um, in Keir Starmer being a good performer, and I thought he would, you know, conduct himself well. But I think everyone's been quite taken aback. I aback. I do agree with Ben. I think. Um, some of the thing that helped him was the fact that Corbyn was just so bad and, you know, Labour gave voters no credible alternative. And I think that made people feel very disillusioned. So, you know, Keir Starmer is so, so different to what um, Corbyn represented. And I think the the current situation has also favoured him. He has been quite a lucky general, I think, so far. And, and luck is important in politics. I think the COVID crisis has actually given him an advantage that few leaders of the opposition get. When you become leader of the opposition, you often struggle to define yourself very quickly, whereas this COVID crisis has given him, you know, like the only story in town in which to insert himself in, in a way which is quite calm and quite measured and quite constructive. Also, the fact that um, Parliament has changed with social distancing, I think that's really helped him with his Prime Minister's questions. He's very good at it. He's very forensic. But that kind of almost courtroom setting obviously has benefited him as well. So I think he's done well. I think he's displayed very good judgment. He's he's pitched it properly. He's not been shrill. He's not been shrieky, but he has provided robust opposition. But and it's a huge, huge but. We still have a long, long way to go. Alistair, over to you. I mean, what do you make of these numbers? Were you, were you surprised by just how well the public seemed to be receiving Keir Starmer? No, but I think you've got to be careful with any uh, numbers, particularly if they're showing something quite dramatic. I mean, I, I noticed going around the place that a lot of people 
still don't really know him. Um, and I think we shouldn't underestimate that he's still got a job to do in terms of really cementing himself in the public mind. I agree with Aisha. I think what he has done, he has done very well. Um, I think that the, the, the other thing we should not underestimate is, look, let's be absolutely frank about this. For the last five years, the Labour Party has been off the pitch as a yeah. serious, credible party. And most, not most, but an awful lot of people have actually just not even been following the Labour Party because they've just assumed that the Labour Party is not going to be the government. Um, and, you know, it's been an aberration, you know, cue endless sort of, you know, Blairite, neoliberal scum tweets from any Corbynistas who, who listen to this. Um, yeah. But that's true. That is the truth. And what came close in 2017, though, right? Yes, they did come close, and we can go over that if you want. I can give you the reasons why I think that happened. I think that they came close in part because nobody thought they could win, and I think they didn't get close this time because people thought they might win. Um, now, what Keir Starmer has done is shown that it is possible to have a grown-up, credible, sensible, uh, clever, smart-at-the-dispatch-box leader of the opposition. That's what he's done so far. He's also shown that it's possible to to do to make the changes that he, that you've had to make without sort of smashing everything up. Now, Aisha talked about the big but. The big but for me isn't just the time that now comes; it's what does Labour do with that time, and most importantly, what is the offer that Labour is going to put to the public when it does come to a uh, general election. And I think a lot of the thinking on that still has to be done. But I can't tell you, I mean, I, I virtually given up watching Prime Minister's questions. I've now, 12 o'clock Wednesdays, I want to, you know, yesterday I was, I was actually arranging my diary to make sure I wasn't doing something at 12 that I otherwise would have been, because I actually do want to watch Prime Minister's questions. And also here's the thing from having, you know, been in opposition and in government, I know that millions and millions and millions of people don't watch it, but I have always felt Prime Minister's questions is incredibly important as what I call a strategic anvil. It's where you see your strengths and your weaknesses. It's where you test them. It's where you spot the strengths and weaknesses in your opponent and it's where that you test them. And I think Keir has done very, very well on that so far. I want to come back to... Leadership and um, sort of how leaders' images are shaped, and uh, what Keir Starmer needs to do in the future. But before I go there with Ayesha and Alistair, I mean Ben, we talk about leaders' ratings a lot, and we obviously track this every month. But I mean, how important are the ratings of leaders in terms of how voters make their choice? Well, we actually think they're they're very important, Kieran, because you might have read one of our colleagues, Roger Mortimer's dissection of Cameron uh, versus Miliband back in 2012, where, of course, he predicted that Cameron would win in 2015, uh, based even though Labour at that point were ahead, because Cameron did so much better than Miliband on some of these leader characteristics. So that we, you know, we know that people cast their votes on their view of the party, on their view of the policies, but but also on their view of the leader, and in particular on two things, being good in a crisis and being a capable leader, whatever that means. And those are the two things, not being honest, but those two particular aspects are the things that have consistently tended to predict who would, who would win. And so, no, I think the leadership scores do matter. I absolutely agree with what Alistair's saying, that there's still a lot of space. So, 
Whereas Boris is very polarizing and he has around half the population who disagree with lots of aspects of his, um, you know, his, his image. Uh, in the case of Keir Starmer, it's more that he's got more people who are positive than negative. But when you get into these detailed aspects, and it's difficult until you're prime minister for people to know whether you'll be good in a crisis, um, although they've sort of grasped that he might be good at detail. But, you know, it's, it's going to be how he gradually fills that out. But at the moment, he's in a, you know, he's in a reasonable place. Although, having said all of that, when you ask people at the moment to make a straight choice, Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer, who's the best prime minister? At the moment, as you know, Boris Johnson is still, despite all of his problems, five percentage points ahead of Keir Starmer, but very early days in every way. It's worth stressing that point, actually, because we, we compare, and we, we did this in our press release, we, you know, you want the publicity, of course, but um, uh, Keir Starmer's net rating of plus 31 is the, the, the same as the highest Tony Blair ever got when he was opposition leader. Difference being that when Tony Blair got that score of plus 31, um, John Major was very much in the doldrums at the time, whereas, as you say, um, Boris Johnson has kind of is polarising. He has just as many like him as dislike him. That wasn't the case for Major. So these things aren't ever in a vacuum. Um, I'll come to back to Aisha and uh, Alistair. I mean, how important do you when, when you guys were at the sort of top end, top level of the Labour Party? I mean, how how closely were you watching what the public thought of the various leaders? I'll go to you, Aisha, first. Well, we were we were watching very closely and any um, aide or any political leader who says that they don't look at the polls and they don't read newspapers and they don't care, they're, they're lying. That's absolutely not true. You know, you become obsessed with them. And I very much agree with Alistair about PMQs. In fact, I wrote a book about it, interviewed Alistair about it. The You don't necessarily win or lose elections because of PMQs, but it does give you a really good barometer of how a leader is, is doing. So I think Team Keir will, again, he's a very sober sort of non-exciting person I did see somebody moaning it was a, a Corbynista moaning on Twitter this morning about how oh Keir's just dead boring because he's beige and then somebody on Magnolia and someone pointed out well actually beige and Magnolia are the most popular colours of paint so perhaps that's like not a bad <laughs> thing at the end of the day um, and given what we've just gone through we had high levels of excitement but more on the psychotic end let's be completely honest <laughs> and um, and I think like I think one of the interesting things about him and his team they're very very level-headed I mean whenever I've sort of talked to them over the last couple of weeks they're not, they don't get madly, madly, their heads don't get turned by a good poll, but at the same time, they don't get kind of down in the dumps when somebody, you know, has a go at them. And I think that's probably quite sensible. And I think his kind of get that character will probably lend itself quite well to the fact that we still do have a long four years minimum till we get anywhere near a general election. And I think his style, which is kind of show, you know, demonstrate, show, don't tell, and the fact that he's not incredibly vengeful as a as a character and not very hot-headed that does give me um optimism but I think there's a few bear traps he's got to be really careful not to kind of blunder into the first is the the stuff that's been going on at the moment the culture war and I do agree with David Lammy's analysis that the prime minister number 10 are trying to kind of sort of stoke up a, a culture war for Labour to completely walk into because that's exactly the sort of thing that Jeremy Corbyn would have done and it ended up being very damaging the left very don't win culture wars it's just like a fact um, and I think he's also got to be careful he doesn't need to rush into 
spelling out any detailed policy at this stage. And I think he will come under a lot of pressure, particularly from the left within the party, to do that. And of course, we know as soon as that happens, everyone will, will try and kind of frame him as, you know, either not being radical enough or sort of, you know, red communist here or whatever. So I think he's 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 got to he's got to still kind of I think he's better for him to err on the bland side rather than the interesting side, um, because being a grown up is not necessarily that kind of, as I said, dramatic, but actually it may be what the public kind of thirst for after, you know, we've only had sort of six months. Well, we've had less than six months of a Boris Johnson government and it's just been crazy and wild. And actually people may want that stability, you know, in four years time. I'll come to Alistair in a moment, but Ayesha, I was keen to get your views on the, the Miliband days. Um, Ed Miliband was someone that sort of, he didn't have ratings as bad as Jeremy Corbyn, but he was definitely um, someone that our polling showed uh, people struggled with uh, as a potential prime minister. So I wondered if there was anything from the, from Ed Miliband's experience or those days that you think Labour can learn from and Starmer can learn from now as they're looking to um, cement his reputation, other than not eating bacon sandwiches in public. public. <laughs> Other than that, and, and not perhaps putting all your pledges on a giant big sort of thing that resembles a tombstone. Other than that, then, yeah, I think if he managed to avoid those two things, you know, victory might be his. Um, look, it, I'm always wary of doing the sort of, oh, here's here's what I would have done. But I do think that um, the first thing I would say to Keir is that I think one of the things that Ed himself, I think, would would think looking back on his time is that his initial instincts were often correct on big issues, but he allowed himself to sort of seek so much counsel that he ended up he ended up sort of splitting the difference on everything. And he never kind of won. The only things he really got huge plaudits for, for were things where he was actually really quite brave and listened to himself, like on the, the Leveson and inquiry or, or, or something like that. I think on a lot of the other stuff, particularly as we got closer to the election, he did um, try to triangulate his way through everything. And you can do that for a certain amount of time in politics but you can't do that like all the time in politics. you do have to pick a side you do have to kind of be not embarrassed to reveal what your political heart is and I think that's probably something that Ed himself regrets and I think sort of working closely with him that's something that that I felt very um acutely about but I think unfortunately politics is pretty brutal as you guys know tracking it on a sort of day by day basis and the truth is Ed I remember after Ed won he didn't even really get a 24-hour honeymoon period because as soon as he won it was straight into that sun headline red Ed there was a narrative that was was set up from day one you can't trust this guy he's owned by the union stabbed his brother in the back red Ed that was it and actually that attack line was promulgated within minutes of him winning and it was the same attack line along with don't give the keys back to the two eds that crashed the car that was the same attack line used right till the general election so in some ways your kind of fate is cast quite early as a leader of the opposition people make quite it's a bit like dating somebody you kind of make quite an instant snap decision whether you quite like them or not and that is the same with the leader of the opposition and i think Keir, this is why i think Keir is in quite an unusual position it is very rare very rare for a new leader of the labor party in opposition to have this much goodwill behind him 
Um, that's something that I haven't seen for a long time in, in the Labour leader. Alistair, I'll come to you. Going back to when Tony Blair took over in the 90s, obviously um, following John Smith's death. But he, I'm curious to get your impressions on, I mean, Tony Blair and yourself and others must have looked back at how Neil Kinnock was treated by the British press and obviously been very, very keen, uh, if that's not too much of an understatement, for that not to have been um, the case for Tony Blair. I mean, how important was this idea of projecting leadership uh, to Tony Blair and how did he try to do that? Well, it's fundamental. I mean, I I agree with Ben that there's lots of different reasons why people make a, a judgment, but ultimately, particularly in the modern age, I think, a lot of it is about leadership. And, and, and one other thing for Keir, by the way, I think he's going to have to broaden and strengthen the leadership team. I mean, they, 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 you know, they've got to become much more high profile and much more connecting as well. Um, but no, we're, we're right at the start with Tony, it was fundamental. And um, I've got to say, by the way, to Aisha, I didn't read newspapers. I read the Labour Party Media Monitoring Report, which I still do, even though I'm not a member. And I, I, I read that rather than read the... Uh, read the papers. I, I, I do think it is a total waste of time to read newspapers. Um, I think you have to know what's in them, which is different. Um, and I think the other thing about polls, I didn't I didn't read polls. I absorbed polls. I guess I had Philip Gould to do that. I, I did read some of Philip's focus group reports, but I, ne- I can honestly say I never read the raw data in an opinion poll in my life. I absorbed them. Because I think you've got to be very, very careful. I, I think your job is polls, you guys, right? And that's important. And what you do is important. Tracking opinion is important. But I think you've got to be very careful in leadership not to be driven by them. I think one of Johnston's problems at the moment, you get a sense that virtually everything they're doing is coming out of focus groups, as opposed to they're actually leading the country in the direction the country needs to go. And I think that the way, if you put it all in that, sort of focus group polling basket, I think, you, I think you're heading for, for real trouble. And what we had with Tony, I mean, you know, um, and actually, I don't know, Aisha, but you may be interested to know at the moment, I'm, I'm editing volume eight, which is what you might loosely call the, the Milliband years. Um, <laughs> so I'll be, very, I'll be very kind to you, obviously. But I, I, I do think that when we, when we compare the various Labour leaders that we've known, I think the one thing that Tony was really clear about, and if I wouldn't have worked for him he had, if he hadn't been clear about, about it, was the general over, if you like, the strategic overview that we were going to pursue. And I think with, with Ed, you know, and Aisha has heard me and Ed have this argument many, many, many times. I do believe that the Labour Party under Ed played into the Tory strategy rather than set out their own. The Tory strategy was... And Aisha just rightly said it was, you know, don't give the keys back to the guys who crashed the car. Labour, in my view, played into their message that we crashed the car. And I don't think they ever recovered from that. And also for the public, you know, those members of the public that, as I say, sort of basically vacated the political landscape when Corbyn was in charge because they thought this isn't serious. I think with Ed, for a lot of those people, whether we like this or not, whether we think it's sort of fair or not, they never really got past the brother thing. They never really got past this idea, this is a bit weird, you know, we thought that brother was going to win and now that one has come along and stabbed him in the back. That's what people said, and we all know they said that. And I don't think they ever really, I don't think Ed really had a way of dealing with that. 
No, and I agree with Aisha. I think a lot of stuff. I think he had, you know, good instincts on some things. I think he had very. I don't think his manner was nearly as kind of weird as, as the 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 bacon sandwich thing came to sort of you know, allow itself to be projected. And yet, I don't think he got over those first two big steps. So I'm looking at some of the numbers now from one of our recent press releases, and there's there's two things that strike me. Something I mentioned earlier, which is that. Um, Boris Johnson's nowhere near as unpopular as John Major was or Gordon Brown was when um, when uh, Blair and Cameron were getting their best ratings. So there's still there's that polarisation on the on the Tory side, but there's also on the on the side of the Labour brand. Um, we find when we were going into um, the general election, we found that 48% um, were unfavourable uh, towards the Labour Party and just 32% were favourable. Since um, Starmer's become leader, that the, the unfavourability has fallen, which um, some would attribute to the change of leader and, and, and Corbyn no longer being leader there. Um, but the, the number that are favourable hasn't changed. So there's clearly something, uh, there's some work to do, shall we say, with the Labour mm. Party brand. So I'm keen to get um, Alistair and Aisha, your views on this. I mean, what, is there a priority for Starmer? Is it attacking the Tories and, and discrediting the government and, and Johnson as Prime Minister? Or is it that work to restore Labour as a sort of credible vehicle of government? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm probably... Um, I don't know how to put this, really. I'm probably a bit more pugnacious than I think Keir is at the moment. And I get why he is like he is. I really do. But I can't tell you how relieved I felt yesterday when I heard David Lammy talking on the television and the radio about this whole kind of race issue and Johnson's leadership more generally and the fact that the thing was sort of, you know, behind the telegraph paywall and if this was a serious thing, why haven't they implemented? I just thought there was a passion there that I want to hear more of in Labour politics. And and that's why I think the team's important because there's no... Look, I actually find this thing about why she was saying about people thinking that Keir's boring i don't find him i don't think he's boring i think he's actually quite an interesting guy and i you know he's my mp i know him quite well i think he's he's actually i think his backstory is interesting i think the the look, he's, he's barely been an mp for a few years and he's become the leader of the Labour party there's a lot to him and i think that, you know i'd like to see more of that kind of that passion and that oomph and I'd like to see, and I do think this government, I mean, when I saw Boris Johnson the other day going to Westfield to talk about, you know, let's put the tiger in the tank of the economy and blah, blah, blah. I actually think Johnson has made such a mess of this COVID thing. I don't know how he dare walk out in the street without worrying that he's going to get somebody really have a go at him. Because that's what it should be like at the moment. They have failed utterly. And I don't believe that they're really feeling the heat that they should be on it. Aisha, what do you think? Well, I think there's very few people as pugnacious as Alistair right now. Probably apart from Piers Morgan, I think Alistair and Piers are, you know, doing sterling work in terms of showing their ire to the government. I think it's I think it is difficult for Keir. I do share um Alistair's frustration, but I think a lot of this comes down to the character of the leader. So Keir is not a naturally aggressive person. He's an assertive character, but I don't think he's uh, kind of naturally um, aggressive. It's also very difficult for the leader of the opposition to just keep that level 
of yeah. kind of outrage up the whole time. That's why you need outriders to sort of do that. You do need other people. You don't need to be the person leading the charge, but you know, you need to know when to make that kind of strategic strike and that intervention and, and move it on in terms of prime minister's questions or wherever. And I think he's been quite good at, 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 at sort of judging that. The, the other thing about the sort of um, the gap between his own favourable popularity at this point and the drag anchor, which is the Labour brand, you can't ignore that. And it would be completely inauthentic and kind of cringe for Kia to start giving it the big one. Like, you know, hey, hey, you know, I'm I'm heading towards Downing Street. You know, we all know he's got to he's got to do more than Tony Blair did in 1997 to, to get over the line. And I think we've had so much kind of mad hubris from the Labour Party over the last um, five years. No, totally. a, 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 a bit of humility is not a bad thing for him to do. And also what he has to do, and he's actually doing it quite effectively by not shouting and screaming about it. He's mm -hmm. really slowly getting a grip on the Labour Party, which is we shouldn't underestimate what a huge job that is. There's no way you're going to rehabilitate the brand of the Labour Party if you don't deal with all the kind of crazy internal toxic, you know, nightmare that's been going on. He's got rid of the general secretary. He's got a kind of decent general secretary in. He, we've got the report into anti-Semitism coming down the track. He's got rid of a lot of people. You know, he's got he's got control of the NEC again. So he's got to do quite a lot of kind of clearing out the stables before he can really himself get out there. So I think it, I, I kind of I'm probably a bit more forgiving than Alistair. No, on I, listen, his kind listen, of I, I'm, I'm not unforgiving at all. I, I get completely why he is doing it as he is. I think the point you made about about outriders is important. I mean, we had like so we had Tony, who was a leader and who was. You know, young he, he, Tony wasn't, as it were, a difficult sell to the public because he just had something special. I think people saw that. But then we also had John Prescott, who never stopped taking lumps off the Tories. We had Gordon Brown, who was this big, restless, energetic mind that was really, really focused on the economy. We had Robin Cook, who was, you know, you remember Robin Cook during the, say, something like the Scott Inquiry or something like that, just relentless on the detail. So I would say, for example, on COVID at the moment, I'm not, I'm really not suggesting that Keir sort of morphs into a cross between me and Piers Morgan. <laughs> the love child, the love child of you work. and Piers Morgan. <laughs> and I, I think the style of Piers Hughes has been, has been terrific. But I really do think that other members of the shadow cabinet, other members of the Labour front bench, other backbenchers should be being empowered to absolutely be taking these people to bits, minute by minute, hour by hour, never stopping. That's what I mean about how it's got to be a team thing, not just Keir. I agree with Aisha about Keir's style. I think it's, I think it could be very, very refreshing to the public. And I think, I mean, and that would help, of course, build perceptions of labor as competent which is always the the sort of challenge because people will assume you know the, the tendency of the two parties is to assume that the tories are mean but sort of efficient when it comes down to it and labor is well-intentioned and generous but not always competent and uh and i so i think that's right I, the, the interesting thing is i mean i, I at the moment Keir's biggest weakness compared to johnson is this sort of a lot of personality and as you as you both say Having a sort of ridiculous clown-like personality may not uh, be what's needed, but th there is, you know, there is there is time for people to find out a bit more about Keir Starmer, I guess. Yeah, I think that there there is time, and I think 
my my other big a bit of advice would be that he'll be he'll be having his office will be inundated with offers from people who want to come and essentially help him kind of change his character and sort of become somebody else and have more stardust he doesn't need to do that i think whatever field you're in it, you succeed particularly with a public persona if you are kind of gloriously yourself and I think yeah. he just needs to be very kind of comfortable in his own skin. And it's a very good skin to, to, to be in. You know, as Alistair said, he's got an amazing backstory. You know, for once in the Labour Party, we, for a long time, we haven't really had anybody who's done anything else other than Labour politics. You know, he's proved himself, um, you know, in the outside world very, very well. He's probably one of like, the leading lawyers in, you know, in Europe, like over the, the last few sort of decades. So he's got a lot of good stuff to show um, the public. But I think he just needs to sort of avoid the siren calls to sort of jazz himself up and and completely sort of try and, and, and change who who he is. I do I do agree with Alice's point about the team. And I think one of the things that's really noticeable about the whole Boris Johnson fiasco is that he has not been at the helm of the comms communication strategy. Maybe that's because he's still got residual illness from COVID, maybe it's just because he's taken his eye off the ball, who knows. But what, what it has exposed is how shallow the talent is in the cabinet. It's been laid bare for everybody to see. And if you contrast that with Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, now Scotland hasn't actually ad adopted a different strategy and policy uh, platform in terms of COVID, but she has had a very different presentational style. She's sort of been there herself. She's she's led everything, but I don't think Keir can front everything up between now and 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 the next general election. He is going to have to make sure his core team do rise up. And I I do share Alistair's kind of concern about that. I think he's got some really good people in the shadow cabinet, but they definitely have to to step up. They have to step up in terms of their own. Um, performances, but they also have to build up the infrastructure of the Labour Party. There has got to be a really good press operation, not just in the leader's office, but which services the whole of the front bench. All the front benchers need to really up their game in terms of, they, they're all political athletes now for the next four and a half, five years. They have to kind of up their game. They've got to be energetic. They've got to be on things. They've got to kind of understand how to write, how to get things across on the, on the media properly. So there is a lot of that kind of infrastructure work that does need to, to be developed to sort of, you know, build up the capacity of not just Keir, but he wants to have, he wants to go in to the next general election a good 18 months out with people not just knowing who he is, but but knowing who his top team are and thinking they don't look mad. In fact, they look quite good. Yeah, I suppose we saw in the 2017 election when it was it was all about Theresa May for a long time, and that was fine when the public thought she was great, but then when they stopped thinking she was great, things kind of evaporated quickly. Um, I want to finish by getting each of you to sort of say what you think the, the biggest priority is for Keir Starmer and maybe the biggest obstacle, if I can let you think about that for a moment. But before I do, we haven't mentioned, I mean, it's good that you brought up Scotland, Aisha, but I, I was thinking about Scotland um, earlier. It's a, it's a big challenge for Labour, isn't it? For obvious reasons, clearly um, you know, one Labour MP there now, which obviously was never usually the case back uh, decades ago. Um, but it also strikes me as it's something that uh, Scotland could be used as something of a campaign tool by the, the Conservatives too, right? Because if Boris Johnson is able to um, hold off um, the call for a second referendum on Scottish independence, then presumably the Tories will go into the next election saying, well, if you vote Labour, then you're going to get the breakup of the UK because they'll have to do a deal with the SNP. 
and uh, there'll be another referendum there and we'll stand up to them, etc. Now, that might not work. I don't know how sort of salient that issue will be for voters in England and elsewhere uh, at the next election, but it's, you know, it's a tactic they could use. So just briefly before we finish on the, the wider question, uh, it'd be good to get Alistair and Aisha your views on what, what Labour does about Scotland. So maybe Alistair first. I mean, I think Scotland is is a huge, huge problem for Labour. Um, we never, you know, even Tony's massive majorities, if you look at the numbers and you look at how many seats we had in Scotland, um, they were they were they were a fundamental part of our governing success. If like. We wouldn't have been and we wouldn't have stayed in power for as long as we did had we not held on reasonably well to considerable support in Scotland. Now, I guess the question is for Labour is whether that is going to come back anytime soon. And it's very, very hard to see how it does when, as Aisha says, and I get a lot of flack from my Labour friends in Scotland when I say this, but, you know, you you do have to kind of just accept the fact that the, the SNP government has been in, they've been in power for a long time, but they don't yet have that kind of sense around them that governments who've been in power a long time tend to attract themselves. They still look kind of, you know, they're the, well, they are the main show. There's no doubt about that. They're the, they're the strongest party by a considerable way. I think the Tories are slightly losing their way in Scotland. I think that gives Labour some opportunity. But Keir has, Keir, and I mean, I, listen, I think Ian Murray's terrific, by the way. I, I think that one, the one MP Labour have got is a good one. Uh, and I think he's a real fighter. But Labour need to make Scotland part of a bigger narrative. And for that, they've got to really decide whether Labour is essentially and fundamentally a unionist party that is going to fight to preserve the union or whether there is somewhere between the kind of, you know, out and out independence position that the SNP want and what the Tories will fight for, which is basically, you know, the Scots are a bit of a pain in the ass, but better out, better in than now. And so I, I but I, I think that all of these discussions that we're having and the numbers that you look at, um, Scotland is an incredibly complicating part of that equation. Labour will really, really struggle to get back in power unless we can somehow pull things back in Scotland. And I'm not clear that there is yet a strategy so to do. Aisha, your thoughts on Scotland? Uh, well, being Scottish and loving Scotland, um, Scotland is an absolute nightmare for the Labour Party. Absolute nightmare. And and it's it's a problem which the Labour Party has to address soon. We don't have the luxury of time. I mean, we have the general election four and a half years ago. We have big elections coming up, Holyrood elections in 2021. And, you know, remember, Scotland is in third place. The, the Conservatives have overtaken uh, Labour in, in Scotland. And the SNP, I think, will absolutely want to make the 2021 elections a referendum. They want to get their mandate on having Indy Ref 2. And there's every chance that they will do spectacularly well and they will take that as their mandate. Now, Labour um, is in a really, really difficult position. I mean, Labour always feels like it's losing in Scotland, like sort of whatever position it takes on independence. The, the, the Conservatives will absolutely bang the drum for being um, the Unionist Party, although Boris Johnson is madly unpopular in Scotland. I mean, and, and they've lost Ruth Davidson, who was a, a very um, good uh, sort of leader. And the, the new guy, Jackson Carlo, just, 
you know, doesn't have the same appeal that Ruth Davidson does. I mean, Labour at the moment, particularly under Richard Leonard and um, Ian Murray and Jackie Bailey, who's the newly elected deputy, they're very much leaning into um, opposing having a second referendum. But I think they will be they will be punished quite heavily at the at the ballot box because of that because I don't know what Alistair thinks but I, I mean certainly when I speak to friends family who obviously haven't been to Scotland for a while because of lockdown it does feel that there is you know a real there is a real thirst for this the the, the blood is up lots of people who were staunch unionists in 2014 have now changed their mind and a lot of that is because of Boris Johnson you know Boris Johnson is the best gift to Nicola Sturgeon and in fact the 2021 um, Hollywood election is going to be seen as sort of um, Nicola Sturgeon versus Boris Johnson that's what the frame is going to be Labour's even going to struggle even to really get into the debate now if Labour gets absolutely hammered in 2021 which is entirely possible that's a big setback for Keir's narrative which is we're on the road to Downing Street because as Alistair said it's very hard to win an overall majority without gaining seats in Scotland. The problem is if they come up with a hybrid solution, which is um, we're not saying, you know, we're not saying no to independence, but what about more devolution? What about a federal UK? The danger is you, you end up sort of in that kind of really awful watery Brexit position that the Labour ended up in, which, as we all know, did us no favours either. You do have to make quite a strong choice on this. But I think for either side, for either side that Labour picks, it's very difficult. I mean, I had a lot of Twitter interaction on this uh, a couple of weekends ago. And actually, what was amazing is so many yes supporters were messaging me saying if if there was an independent Scotland, we'd all stop voting for the SNP and actually we'd all look at Labour again. And it's, it's very hard. It's very difficult. Well, the other thing that we haven't really talked about, but which I think is still going to be a very important part of the next phase of our politics. And again, I'm, I wish Labour would engage a little bit more with it, and that's Brexit. And of course, in the Scottish context, I'm not saying that all Scots are, you know, mad Remainers, they're, they're, you know, but, but certainly there is a more anti-Brexit feel up there than there is in, in certain parts of England. And that is going to play into this as well. So and Aisha's right. I mean, Johnson is such a kind of archetypal. He's not just an English Tory, he's an English nationalist. And, you know, some Scots will like him, but most Scots really don't. And that sense of Scotland, just back to that feeling a little bit like it was with Thatcher, at least Thatcher had a certain sort of respect in a way that Johnson doesn't. But that feeling that, that what happens in London politics doesn't have that much to do with me. I think that is growing. I think that the the idea that when there is still such support for independence, you just say, well, there's no way you can ever kind of put that to the test. I think that is going to become very, very difficult for Labour. So I I I, I, I worry about what, about Scotland, and, and and I've got to say, you know, it's interesting what Aisha said there. I, I in fact, one of the one of the highlights of Volume Eight, the Miliband years. It's not called that, by the way. <laughs> I don't even remember Aisha, but during the Scottish referendum, I was up there for quite a lot of the time. And I can remember one night, Ed got um, harangued and hassled at an airport, I think it was. And anyway, I was in bed in the middle of the night and he, just, he got back from a rally and he discovered that we we're in the same hotel. And he got me out of bed to talk about how we were going to turn Scotland around. And so that was, that was one of my lasting memories of that. But my point is, the point I was going to make is that I had no hesitation about going up there and kind of you know working hard and trying to fight to 
save the union, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure I'd have the same passion for it if I was on the same side of the, an argument with Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and that lot. I think that's absolutely right. And I think... Um... I think that's the problem. And I think there was a there were a lot of people, you know, so one of the big debates that's been had at the moment amongst sort of, you know, progressive unionists is who, you know, how do you even begin to start pulling together this coalition if, if there is going to be a second referendum and, and who would you get to lead it? Because actually there's lots of people that were so vocal in 2014 and are now like, you know what, I, I don't know if I actually would want to be the kind of big sort of outrider on, on this. But yeah, I mean... Our, our trips up to Scotland were, were were rather doomed. I do remember Ed getting mobbed and not in a good way in a shopping centre. And this was the, at the point when um, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP were absolutely berating Ed for austerity. And Ed hid in a hairdresser's, which was unfortunately called Supercuts. And that was not a good moment for us. Final remarks from each of you then. I'll, I'll, I'll go uh, Ben, Alistair and Aisha can have a final word then. So we bring it back to Keir Starmer and Labour. So, I mean, given all we've talked about today, what do we think the uh, the main priorities for Starmer are in the coming, let's say, year or two? And um, what are the biggest challenges? Well, he's got to start building, a, you know, just not... I mean, at the moment, he's doing very well by not being Boris Johnson and obviously by taking Johnson apart on some of the detail. He's now got to... We've now got to learn a bit more about the narrative um, for all the, you know, for all the people who want a, a much more activist government, I mean, the challenge Labour has is that, you know, the Tories are sort of shapeshifters, given that, you know, you've got a, a man who never thought he'd be Chancellor paying 8.9 million people's wages. If you'd told him this was going to happen in December, I mean, I'd have laughed you out of court. So the Tories are infinitely adaptable and, they're, you know, the policies that they've had over the last uh, decade, in a sense, have varied dramatically. So, you know, it's it's difficult to know you, you may have a conservative government that's going to spend, you know, billions on on public services, etc. I mean, I, you know, so that's going to be interesting. I absolutely agree with the points that Alistair and Aisha have made about getting the front bench to be much more visible and competent. You want to sort of think that here's the government in waiting. And at the moment, that that is just not there. So that that's going to be that's going to be part of the task. And um and as for rebuilding in Scotland, that's way above my pay grade. But my God, in the maths, the maths mean it's a, a challenge. Final word from you, Alistair. Well, it's interesting you talk about the Tories being adaptable. I and mean, while we've been talking, you know, they've announced a complete vault fast on this school, free school meals over the summer. Wow, um, there you go. So, so. I, and I knew that was coming because I was talking to some, I know somebody who works with Margaret Rashford on the PR side. And uh, she was bemoaning to me just how awful it has been dealing with certain politicians but so they are incredibly adaptable they will change and they will they they will sort of do whatever they think they need to do so i think for Keir, i think the short i think we've sort of covered what he needs to do in the short and the medium term the most important thing then is actually how do you build a progressive left of center post-covid narrative that is absolutely rooted in what labor people are but yeah, speaks yeah. to the challenges of the future and that to me is about, and this is some of the stuff to be fair to Ed that he was on about, you know, through his leadership. It is about what a, a kind of, you know, world-class environmental policy looks like. It is about addressing all these inequalities that we've kind of talked about. We, I think, did an awful lot to address them, but not enough. And I think it's so it's taking those really, really, really big challenges and framing a policy development process that sort of makes people excited by what's happening inside the Labour Party. And at the moment, I think he's doing well. 
the party, I think, is still a little bit moribund and it's got to kind of start to understand it's about the next generation of big ideas to meet the big post-COVID challenges. And I'd like to see some big thinking fairly soon. Final word to you, Aisha. Well, I think it's worth sometimes learning a lesson from your um, opponents. And I think one of the things that Linton Crosby famously said was, was it clear the barnacles off the, 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 the boat? And I think... I think Q needs to sort of, and his team do need to do that going forward. I think they do need to just really remember the mistakes from the last general election, which was having this kind of confetti of, of policy across like every single aspect of everybody's lives. I think they've got to really, really focus on sort of what the public care about, particularly in a post-COVID world, and particularly because we know that we have the mother of all recessions, if not depressions, um, coming down the, the track. So it's a way, he has to make sure that he he chimes in with the public mood and that he has a kind of compassionate sense of, of radicalism, but he's got to more than above everything, not be mad. He's just got to not be mad. I know that's that's a modest goal. Yeah. <laughs> but like, when I say he, I mean like the whole of the part. He's got to, you know, you say that, but it's very easy for the Labour Party to to to, to spiral out of control on 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 that. So the tagline has been announced today. Uh, Keir Starmer, I'm not mad. There we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you laugh now. You laugh now. <laughs> hey, we've seen worse. Um, Aisha Hazarika, Alistair Campbell, Ben Page. Thank you very much for your time. That was the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. A big thanks to our guests once again. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe to the show or tell a friend about us or share our content on social media. It all helps uh, grow our audience and spread the word. But for now, thanks for listening and have a great week.